Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here. And today I'm talking with Theo Huresh, who is a local Boulder social entrepreneur, philosopher, and author of the new book, Convergence, The Globalization of Mind, which is just out now, right, Theo? It's just out. Available on Amazon and, uh, yep. you know. It's there. Worth checking out. <laughs> Convergence, The Globalization of Mind. And let me actually just start there, Theo, with you, if I could. You know, we all know about the globalization of the economy and trade and travel and all of that. But you're talking about, you know, to an integralist, it's so delicious because <laughs> you're saying, okay, that, those are the exteriors of, of globalization. Yeah. And then there's the interiors of globalization, which is the world of the mind. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about yeah, that. We don't tend to do a very good job of thinking globally because the world is such an incredibly tremendous place. Uh, there's vastly more information than if we're thinking at a national level, say. Um, there's vastly more perspectives, more modes of production, more levels of development that we've got to deal with, um, and more issues. And we don't tend to be very familiar with these issues, not in the same way we are with national issues. So we've got climate change and nuclear proliferation and global terrorism and the drug trade and the rainforests and the oceans. I, I could go on. It's a, it's a big list and we're starting to get familiar with these, but we don't tend to have a good feel for how it all fits together. Mm -hmm. How does integral thinking help us think about this? I mean, you're talking about where we are now and that there needs to be another shift in this consciousness, basically, yeah. is what we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, so how does integral help us do that? Well... We're going to be dealing with a lot of different levels of development, obviously, when we start moving out of our own um, country, our own, uh, our own safe spaces, you know, whatever those are for us. Uh, so we're going to have to just be dealing with a lot of difference. Uh, that's one version of it. Um, in terms of the interiors and exteriors, I think I'm really getting at something just, how can we think about this? Mm -hmm. But being able to tend to what's going on inside of ourselves it's really important mm -hmm. i mean when we start dealing with something so vast as a world we're going to become overwhelmed mm -hmm. that tends to be the common response when people deal with the world right. and when they become overwhelmed they tend to contract well i love an example that you used in a talk i listened uh, to recently of yours and that's what when it was the 18th century 19th century yeah. whenever it was but these doctors discovered how to remove cataracts yeah. So they're traveling around Europe, removing cataracts for people who, in some cases, had been blinded by cataracts since birth. Yeah. And it was a mixed blessing. Yeah. It, you know. Yeah. When we see more things, we, uh, we don't know what to do with it. Yeah. We, we've moved out of our comfort zone. And some yeah. of these people were literally overwhelmed. They were overwhelmed. They regretted they, the surgery. Yeah. Yep, they wanted to go back to the asylum. Yeah. Wanted to go back to the asylum. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, I think we see this happening. <clears throat> with uh, with globalization, we see retreats into fundamentalisms, uh, uh, into Islamic radicalism. Uh, we see it with the localization movement as well uh, here in Boulder. Uh, that there's an urge to go back to something we can get a grip on, which is wise in some ways. Mm -hmm. It's it's just we have to do that very carefully mm -hmm. if we're going to. But there's the world, and the world is constantly impinging on our lives. It's yeah. every artifact in this room has been produced through global processes, influenced by, uh, influenced through um, global financial flows, uh, 
And uh, our own psychological state in this very moment is going to be influenced by the state of the world, uh, whether we're at war or peace, uh, what we believe uh, the future of humanity is, is going to be confronting. Yeah. Well, you know, you talk about how we have to build these institutions and, you know, really think uh, more skillfully globally, yeah. if you will. And I would argue that that is, that's in process. Yeah, right. I agree. You know, I mean, one of the great yeah. institutions of globalizations is the Internet. Yeah. Which continues to just, you know, bloom like a, a, a monster <laughs> and maybe, I don't know, a yeah. flower. But, yeah. but, you know, that kind of thing and travel. And as you were talking about uh, in, you know, past articles and things that uh, I've read, you know, you can go as you have yeah. uh, the, to a, a, a refugee camp in where was it? Oh, it was on the border of Iraq in southeastern Turkey. Yeah, and this was last summer. Yeah, last summer. And, and these people are globalized. They're globalized. <laughs> We're sitting out outside in front of um, some of the only structures that had been built there. It's night falls after 105 degree temperatures all day. And uh, everyone's exhausted. I'm dehydrated. And I'm lying down on this old beat up carpet with a bunch of people. And... Uh, I look around and I realize everyone has pulled out their cell phone and they're checking messages and they're texting and they're on Facebook. And since I'm traveling, I don't have a phone. I'm the only one who doesn't have a phone. And one of them says, <laughs> Could I borrow your phone? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> one of them says, Facebook's my real addiction. And they all kind of nod their heads. Isn't and, that something? And you've got this in the midst of, you know, a genocide going on, which is the Yazidis yeah. um, against their people. And at the same time, you have this sort of, you know, I've watched the contracting into a narrower, narrower identity over the last few months yeah. amongst those people. Well, that's one of the things that I think integral theory helps us see is that we develop um, not in lockstep. We develop in, in various lines of development. So people yeah. be, can become technologically <clears throat> advanced. But when it comes to marrying somebody or the yeah. social customs or religion, yeah. I mean, that's not so easy to, um, you know, just think your way out of, and nor should you. Yeah, absolutely. And so that just creates basically a new thing on the planet, which we are part of. And that are that is people who are spanning three or four stages of development. Mm. It's never happened before. Yeah. I, I call this a split level development when you have uh, something's pulling us upward. Say the, the connection, interconnection through the Internet which is actually vastly more local than we tend to think, but we conceive of it in global terms. When we go on the internet, we, we, we feel ourselves to be part of a, a global abstract network, maybe not even global. It's just out there somewhere that includes all people. Uh, at the same time, we've got that going on because it's so overwhelming in some ways. We're bombarded with so many perspectives. There might be some kind of contracting into a narrower identity. Yeah. And so we're stretched. Yeah. Yeah, because it's, um, you know, that that new territory is, uh, we're not, we don't feel secure there. Yeah. And so we want to find security. This is where, and I know you're a meditator for yeah. a long old time. Yeah. And I am too. Yeah. And this is where meditation really helps, is that we sort of deconstruct this sense of self, actually, mm -hmm. and sense of reality as we normally perceive yeah. it, so that we... Uh, are, are loosened from this need to feel quite so solid. Yeah. You know, I think meditation accelerates that process. It's a great practice for mm -hmm. intentional development. 
But that kind of thing happens just generally too, yeah. as people are bombarded with perspectives. Yeah, it you does know? happen naturally. Yeah. Meditation, I, I tend to think of it in very simple terms. It's just a training and equanimity. Yeah. We're, and we're learning how to have equanimity in the midst of ambiguity, in the midst of intense emotions, which we're going to experience when we're confronting new things that we're unaccustomed to. Yeah. And, and you're right. That's, we're, we're going to learn how to widen our identity as we're forced into it. Um, I'd like to minimize the, uh, the chaos and um, backlashes and uh, conflicts that can occur yeah. with that process. And it's good to remember, you know, we have these institutions that are developing the, you know, the internet, we've got um, global civil society is developing, we've got international law developing. Uh, um, we're learning how to deal with some of the global environmental challenges, yeah. I, I think a little too slowly. Uh, and as this is going on, we're accustoming ourselves to these institutions, to these ways of thought. So we're becoming adapted to them. So both both uh, the internal experience is pushing on um, the external institutions and the external institutions are, are creating a space for the inner experiences. Yeah. yeah, and so we we notice that, particularly for those of us who are you know, sort of conscious evolutionaries, if you will, is that, you know, there is a consciousness. The consciousness develops in stages. Yeah. And one of the, you know, real challenges of integral thinking and living and functioning is how does one take the seat of somebody who sees themselves at the leading edge of consciousness? You know, yeah. I mean, I, I can feel the arrogance alert arise, oh you know, red flag, even as I say <clears throat> it. And yet there is nothing to be gained by a coyness when you can actually help. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very tricky to maneuver. Oftentimes, if you're, if you're, working on a global stage, you're dealing with peoples who have been at least partially oppressed or harmed by the same institutions, the same society that's allowed you or created the space for you to develop. Um, so it's a very, very sensitive topic to acknowledge, acknowledge your place in a hierarchy of consciousness. Yeah. Um, and e even as I'm speaking, I'm speaking half in code. <laughs> for any friends that might be listening and and at the same time uh at the same time what's the code theo what? oh i'm just speaking i'm speaking much more integrally uh-huh yeah um because i'm i'm just aware that that to to acknowledge the difference from the top is very very different different than having that acknowledged from below yeah and and i find people very very willing to say all right you you want to help us um you're working really hard for us. You, you know, there's something special about you. I love your writings, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, that acknowledgement is there. It's just, how do you go about addressing development? I mean, you could, the one way you can just simply look at it is development, internal development is a function of the institutions that are available to support your internal development. Yeah, and if you don't have those institutions available in your society, the educational system, uh, government with rule of law, um, leisure time, uh, the ability to make mistakes and have something catch you if you fall, a welfare state, um, good health care, so you're not constantly burdened by health problems. Uh, if you don't have all those things, it's going to be very, very difficult to 
to develop. Yeah. One of the distinctions we make in integral thinking is the difference between a dominator hierarchy and a natural hierarchy. Yeah. And the dominator hierarchy, the, the reason natural hierarchies still continue to raise the red flag is because humanity has been millennia of exploitation of dominator hierarchies. That's the story of humanity, actually. And so, yeah, we're still actually part of a system. It's called global capitalism that continues to oppress and exploit. Yeah. And at the same time, we recognize that we're flying at an altitude of consciousness that actually is this, you know, the continued solution to those problems. Yeah. And um, so, you know, we were talking about what some of the things we might talk about. And, and, and one of them was, so how do you talk about development to people who are at earlier stages of development? And I think the answer is you don't. Yeah. You know, you talk in code. <laughs> Thank you, Thea. I mean, it's, it's, you don't. I mean, yeah. because it's, it's like, one of the great things about Integral, I think, is that it helps us to see sort of the fractal nature of reality. And we can yeah. see that these same dynamics that we see happening among cultures, these conflicts and tensions among cultures and classes even, yeah. are also in our lives. Yeah. And that one of the natural hierarchies that we're all intimately familiar with is being a child mm -hmm. and growing through 6 and 12 and 16 and 20 and that a six-year-old is not a defective 12-year-old and a six-year-old is no less precious than a, anybody else and that a parent actually has to recognize their authority and responsibility. And so... I actually do think that one of the challenges of Integral is getting through this, I don't even know it's, it's getting through it, it's maybe just including it, this sort of guilt, this a sensitivity to my own uh, role in the exploitation, mm -hmm. all of that, uh, paying more, actually realizing that you're more responsible for the relationship than the other person is, mm -hmm. with privilege comes responsibility and all of that, that we just recognize that this is the messy reality that we're in. And we still, and this is where I think Buddhism helps again, is we still just want to be helpful. Yeah. We don't want to get lost in what Trump or Rinpoche called idiot compassion. We want to recognize that people at a higher stage of development are responsible for people at a lower stage of development. You know, that's just sort yeah. of the, I don't know how better to say that. Yeah. If you see more, you've got to be responsible yes. for more. Yeah. It would be hard to do it differently. Yeah. So then looking at what that means from, you know, wherever you're sitting, listening to this, um, you enjoy certain privileges. You don't enjoy other privileges. You have certain freedoms in your life. Um, you have the ability to access uh, news about what's going on in the world and to... Uh, to take some time to feel into what's happening in the world and to learn more and, and to go deeper. And then the question is, when we have that knowledge, what do we do with it? I've personally found it's incredibly difficult making contact outside of, outside of your, your uh, developmental stage, outside of your culture. Um, you can do it through travel, but even in travel, you tend to find people that are um, Western educated, um, that speak English, uh, that are relatively well off. Um, now I found writing about people that are experiencing significant traumas you know, through war, ethnic cleansing or genocide. 
and this is relatively new for me, that I've I've begun to just breach those those barriers, and it's extraordinary. How how so? Well, well, give me an example. I don't know. When I was in the West Bank, uh, I um, I made a friend that uh, was actually. No, in the West Bank, you have this interesting phenomenon of political tours. If you go to Costa Rica, you're going to have environmental tours, but, <laughs> but you have political tours of the occupation. And so the guy giving it, you know, noticed that I was unusually articulate and uh, we kept talking and got to be friends with him. And he took me all over the West Bank and um, introduced me to all kinds of people. And but, you know, he wasn't as educated. He actually wanted to be, but he had um, he'd wanted to be a professor, but he had had that option shut off from him in life and uh so an extraordinary person you know same thing in the in the refugee camp and uh on the border of iraq uh made a friend there that you know he was a college educated engineer but you know he didn't have the same opportunities he desperately wanted to go to america and so through each of them all sorts of friends open up yeah and you just you know you get a smattering of the whole society yeah and you know when i think about this is maybe true of a certain type of person in general, but it's certainly true that as one develops, one just becomes fascinated by, but basically everything, yeah. first of all. <laughs> but that includes everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And so everybody, you know, in, in first tier structures, and we're going to use a little jargon here, but these earlier structures of development, they all want to sort of make the other ones see the world the same way they do. They're monoperspectival. When you become multi-perspectival, then you're, it's like Claire Graves says, you're the universal donor. You're the person who can actually relate to anybody. Yeah. Because you're not trying to, to do anything except receive them. Yeah. And share what you can back. I remember. It's, it's such a relief. Several years back, being on a bus from Turkey into Greece, and uh, I found myself sitting next to a guy who was out of Saudi Arabia for the first time. And he was smoking at every opportunity, and he said he hated getting drunk, but he was just going to get drunk because he could. And uh, but I, I, I bombarded him with questions, and after you know an hour of being bombarded, he he said you know something like, "You don't talk like a, a normal person. It's like I'm being interviewed." Yes, yes. <laughs> and I was like, "I'm sorry. I want to learn everything I possibly can." Yeah, I have this regularly happen. Actually, a lot of the way I make contact is on Facebook. It's, it's a breeze, you know, you, you, you find one, if you're writing about these places, you, you, know, you find one or two people from a country and you start friending their friends and you're this hmm. writer. So um, you eventually have a network of 10 or 20 oh, people from this, you know, from Libya or um, probably got 50 friends from Malaysia. And um, sometimes it's really random uh, based on who you make friends with. And so I'll start talking, I'll ask questions about the place that they're living in. And you start getting into their life and, and actually... If you're if you're asking deep enough questions, you get very deep in their life and their problems, and um, wow, much faster than you would in person traveling. I found yeah, that's something, yeah. it's, and, and of course available to everybody. Easily available. available. Yeah, you can then, you can friend me and then start friending my friends. The Harash <laughs> Facebook. Um, well, that's one of the things you were talking about is an integral journalism. Yeah, and. You know, I introduced you as a social entrepreneur and philosopher and writer and author, but you're a journalist. That's what I, I mean, am now. Basically, aren't you sort of, I mean, what you just talked about, what you just explained feels like a new kind of journalism. I, I don't understand what it is. People just started calling me a journalist this summer and I 
thought, wow, that, that feels kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and I think what felt so cool about it is you just, you, you throw yourself into this place and now I've got much more tools than I think most journalists will bring to the trade. Um, uh, you know, greater background in philosophy and, and the humanities and social sciences. And um, I refuse to leave that at the door and try to do some kind of objective reporting. Well, and also a meditation practice. I mean, that gives yeah. you uh, that, that sense of... I always love what, again, Chogum Trumpa, yeah, yeah. he's the founder of Naropa here in Boulder, so Theo, Theo and I both are influenced by him. But he talks about not aggressing on other people, just by not sort of thought-forcing other people in a way where you, you your curiosity is so intense that it just evokes yeah. it, a, a mutuality. Yeah. The uh, philosopher Thomas Nagel uh, talks about believing in the, the project of objectivity. We, we can get more and more objective, but doing that means we have to account for our subjectivity. Yes. And... Uh, that's something I'm just finding with this journalism. I mm -hmm. have to talk about how my own state has been influenced by what I've seen. And, you know, when you go into trauma zones, you're going to have all sorts of anxieties arise and um, you'll pick sides. And I don't have a problem with picking sides because um, there's usually a side that's more just in their cause, um, that's more deserving, that, that, that there's greater opportunity for happiness to uh, increase quickly by changing a few things, but everybody's guilty. So you're, you're in the muck of it if yes. you start dealing with that stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, but I, I don't see how you can't deal with that. Right. Well, that's, I mean, when you talk about the globalization of mind, as I was saying, you know, human history is just one goddamn thing after the other. As Mark Twain said, um, but it's you know oppression, oppression, oppression. I mean, the real news is yeah. that there are people who are finally getting it that that's not the way forward. The way forward is you know actually it's one of the gifts of modernity, even though modernity yeah. continues to have its own exploitation. But it's the idea that at least we don't war. Yeah, you know, modern countries don't war with each other. They have you know maybe trade wars or whatever, yeah. but they move forward. They realize the way forward is to trade. Yeah. And to have sex. Yeah. And to, you know, marry each other and to let's get to know each other and, and see what we can do together. And that's, you know, actually quite encouraging. And that's happening quite quickly. There's, you know, some, there's still some, you know, these war zones that we can yeah. see are just basically these earlier stages of development, these ethnocentric, victor vanquished kind of conflicts where they just literally, an idea of compromise, it would be like you would expect me to compromise with the devil. You don't compromise with the yeah. devil. You defeat the devil. Yeah. And so that's where they're at. They don't literally don't get it. And, you know, we were talking about, so how do we deal with people who are literally dangerous? I mean, and they're also out in the streets of even developed countries, criminals. Yeah. Uh, how do we deal with them? And I don't know. This is a tough one. I mean, I think, you know, when if, if we look at the last uh, couple big wars that the United States, even back to World War II. I just read a book called The Dark Continent, which was about Europe after World War II. It was a lawless, run by gangs and thugs. I mean, you can imagine the place was decimated. Now the Marshall Plan and people came in and, and you know, seven, 10 years later, they're a global power again. Yeah, It's amazing, same with Japan. Mm -hmm. This is true in Vietnam. When we left Vietnam, you know, this, there was a conflagration, the boat people, I don't know yeah. if you remember all of that stuff, uh, but we didn't, we didn't know about it. 
because we weren't paying attention. There weren't journalists there. There weren't, there wasn't Facebook. There weren't thousands of people with cameras. Now there is. Yeah. And so how do we, as developed people who literally have developed beyond the idea that we get anywhere with violence, it's just not an option. It's not in our repertoire. How do we sit and watch people who haven't gotten that memo continue to, you know, do what human beings have always done to each other? Yeah, that's it's a tough one. There's so much in what you just said. I mean, on the one hand, Freedom House now lists 90 fully free states in the world. And, and when I've looked through these, there aren't any really questionable ones in there. It's sort of there's corruption, significant corruption in India or in Argentina. Um, but, you know, they're not even including uh, Bolivia or Venezuela in there where they have regular elections that are relatively free, but the press is controlled. And these states tend to be pretty boring. They're nice places to travel to. I found it's much more difficult to talk with people in these places and learn about their difference because they're going about living their lives. Uh, there's no real excuse to enter in and talk with them unless you're a part of their thing. Mm-hmm. Um, well-governed peoples are boring peoples. Uh, and we're learning better how to use international institutions to bring order mm-hmm. to a place, to uh, set up elections quickly, um, which don't always bring order, um, but when they, when they do, to set up a constitution quickly, to work with local peoples for this, um, to help them establish a, a press. And we, we can do vastly better with this, and we've screwed up terribly. And by we, I mean the West, NGOs, and you'd be surprised at how many... Um, Non-Westerners are in these NGOs mm-hmm. and thinking very, yes. very globally. Yeah. Um, but then there's this element of what you were saying, uh, you know, about these people are sort of mired in these lower levels of consciousness. And it's not what I'm seeing. It's not that they're not there. It's that they can very, very easily come out. It's almost like it, it might not be as nuanced of a tolerance, but often a, a, just a great tolerance that will just open up. And I can see particularly in some of the, um, you know, there are different, different levels that I'm, I'm talking of here. And there's Palestine, there's larger Arab society. I know Palestine and Palestinians really well. I kind of know Arab societies. And I, I know loads of Muslims from around the world. And you'll see this, this very civil and accepting and warm and generous tolerance. And, you know, and it's a tolerance of other religions as well. And you know that somewhere there's uh, uh, something that's going to snap. That if the, if the conditions are off, if it's too dangerous, um, if they've been dishonored, disrespected, um, particularly in the Arab societies, uh, that there'll be a, a retraction into violence. Um, uh, and I would juxtapose that to people at a stage of development where, where they're dishonored and disrespected, they don't ratchet down to violence. Yeah. But they, they ratchet down to other weird things. Um, yeah, but not violence. Not violence. Yeah. yeah. And that's progress. Yeah, it's progress. You know, character assassination is better than real God. assassination. I don't know, though, if America would, if our institutions were to break, if we were to, if we were to um, Lose a, lose a police force that's trustworthy or become really corrupt. Uh, New York in the 70s, say, that's what we get from the police. Um, the political system becomes fully corrupted. Uh, and we've got a couple of civil wars in outlying regions of the United States that are sort of simmering 
I don't know what we'd contract into and how quickly it would happen. I guess that's well. The, I, I guess you know what I would say to that is there's just basically no chance of that happening. Yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I can see that if there's a you know a gray goo or if, if the a meteor hits or you know if there's something that actually sends it, us into it. But but it's almost like I was talking about yeah, yeah. with Europe after World War II. Yeah, they had a modern consciousness now in in a way. I mean, but they were able to just bob back up and, and actually not only bob back up but higher than yeah. the, 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 western europe and japan both are two of the greenest parts of the planet yeah. and they were red not so long ago yeah you know so um so i think that matters and that's different than cultures who have not reached modernity yet they're still in traditional yeah. structures it's it's not a diss right it's, it's not an insult the question that's arising for me around this is what is the relationship between institutions and consciousness? How much does the institution lift up the consciousness quickly? You know, well-developed institutions, democratic institutions, rule of law, um, welfare well, state. Well, democratic institutions have to be populated by democratically thinking people or else it doesn't work. They do, but once you... So it's interesting, like looking at foreign students coming into the United States from societies that aren't at that level and how quickly oftentimes they can just get it yeah. and move in there. And I guess that to me is the, the question. So, of course. But don't forget how self-selected these people are. They are self-selected. I mean, and one of the things you and I are talking about is that there are people at really every part of the world who are flying at a you know, modern, even postmodern altitude. And the rest of their culture isn't. But. They are. And, you know, these are the people, as you say, we often meet. They're the ones who can eat, speak English. They're the ones who come to America yeah. for, you know, college. And thank God, yeah. because it wasn't so long ago when countries, nobody was doing that. Yeah. Or maybe just the diplomats or the, you know, noth almost nothing. There's a, this is huge. There's a part of me that wonders if these societies can actually produce highly, highly developed people because some people are in a position to rise above the chaos and they've got to grapple with the chaos and the chaos is far more complex than the order of a well-governed society. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. It's, you know, from on the ground, a, a real nice way of summarizing uh, uh, everything we've just sort of debated and discussed. Uh, on the ground, it looks, it looks different than it does in theory. Not that the theory doesn't work, the stages of development, it just looks different. It's, it's murkier. Yeah. Uh, there's more questions that are arising for me. Uh, like one of the big things that's, that's uh, arisen for me is around um, what is tribalism? And actually, I started to find that tribalism looks different everywhere. Not only is, are there different forms of sort of like more corrupt and there's tribalism that's actually highly stabilizing. Well, um, let me just stop yeah, yeah, you yeah, there yeah, just yeah. to say that tribalism looks corrupt from a modern stage of development yeah. uh, scratching the back yeah, yeah. of your you know of your of the person who scratches yours is called the economy yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> in yeah. tribalism yeah you know or or you know taking blood into account and working with my tribe and you know this is it's only corrupt when we have grown to bureaucracies yeah. and to you know anyway i'm thinking really corrupt yeah okay. oh okay like i'm thinking mafia like corrupt. mafia corrupt yeah, yeah that's the, the, right. the, the, what I've been told about Iraq is that Fair it's enough. basically mafia now. Like yeah, the, right. um, but in other places, it's 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 a stabilizing factor. I, I talked yeah. with one um, Somali man, um, 
oddly, I met him at the Harvard Co-op uh, bookstore. He'd grown up in a refugee camp and or refugee camps. And uh, he said, there's no government there. You know, I've read these stories. The government controlled a block or two for a long time. Um, all of that, it was lawless. But there was a government that controlled a block or two. Um, but he said, Bi- private business has, has rebuilt the country and the tribes keep rule of law. Yeah. And they do a pretty good job yeah. of it. Well, that sounds like a... a- appropriate stage of development yeah. uh, in that, you know, people, the institutions of business would take care of the economy. Yeah. And then the, the <clears throat> customs and rules and laws and so forth would still be cultural. Yeah. And that would necessarily probably lag. Government is a lagging indicator, uh, I find. Uh, art is tends to be the mm. leading indicator. Mm. But it's, I think, different. The, the way things bubble up and bubble forward yeah. are different in yeah. different times and places. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think one of the things we really need to get our arms and hearts around is, and minds around is the, the idea that there are people who, I know them. There are people in my, I've got my, the traditionalists in my family, I can't talk them into liking Obama. Yeah. I mean, and I ought not. I mean, I have to, I, I've, I've given up. Yeah. You know, and learn to love them for, you know, in spite of yeah. all yeah. of that. And they're ethnocentric. They don't consider people outside of whatever their circle is to be worthy of moral consideration. So people outside of their tribe aren't, um, especially when push comes to shove. We see that in nationalism. That's a bigger circle. And now, uh, and this is one of the things you pointed out in your, um, something I've read or saw of your, yours, is that, that we're moving and this is, I think, only at the leading edge. And the leading edge is dispersed around the world, no doubt. Yeah. Um, we're moving from flag to globe as yeah. the symbol. Yeah. And isn't that, I love that. It's incredible. Yeah. The and f- and I feel that myself. I mean, how important is it to be an American? You know, I get a little tear in my eye, maybe. It's, it's smaller as the years <laughs> go by, you know, when uh, you know, somebody sings a good rendition of America the Beautiful or whatever. But... The global thing, yeah. you know, s- seeing myself as a citizen of the world, that's just, that's a natural stage of that ever-increasing circle. Yeah. The, the thing that's so exciting about global consciousness is the globe is so naturally demarcated. I mean, barring alien invasion, it's what we've got. Yeah. And, and everything, right. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's um, more natural than any, any form of organ, more well demarcated than any form of human organization that's thus far occurred in the last maybe 10,000 years. Prior to that, the, the tribe might have been so well demarcated, uh, you, you wouldn't step beyond it. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know that. Well, you know, that's a characteristic of, of, you know, at least the early tribal cultures that you literally did not step on one side or the other of a path or some border yeah. between tribes. That's how they yeah. got peace. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was incredible. You think of Papua New Guinea, 1938, yeah. the... Uh, the planes first fly over there and they discover these ancient civilizations that have discovered agriculture on their own. And there are 2000 languages. I think it's an area about the size of Texas, 2000 languages. You'll have a completely different language grouping on in one Valley than the next one over. Not something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But that's really neither here nor there, but it, but it highlights since this very, very early stage of human development, um, we've had, very permeable barriers in our group identity. We can try 
to maintain the fiction of a national identity, but we've always got immigrants coming in and out. We're always influenced by foreign wars and an international economy and colonialism. We forget that that most states haven't had the the freedom to um, to be nearly as sovereign as as the U.S. and several Western European states. So now we've got the globe. Uh, all the environmental influences are. Um, are playing out across the globe. Uh, once we once we let uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere from any of our activities, they go into the upper atmosphere, they into the atmosphere, they spread around, they mix, and whatever it is, uh, whether I got a little extra tea today and the tea took resources to grow and, and there was a little soil that uh, released some carbon in the process, and that, you probably wanted hot tea. So yeah, you exactly. Heated it, it up, up with your car, car, floral carbons. And that one act will influence every single person and species in the world, discovered and yet undiscovered, and all future foreseeable generations. That's damn right, man. Every, every single... So in this one little area, at least, we're not only global, we're, we're atemporal for all yes. practical purposes. Yeah. And, um, well, in a way, that's what's next after global consciousness is, you know, what Ken calls cosmo, cosmic consciousness. And at, at this point, you're actually not only seeing the globe, you're seeing the winds of history yeah. and the winds of future history. Yeah. And to see that everything you do actually goes one way or the other yeah. in that stream. Everything. Um, and, you know, that can be overwhelming or and it probably is. It's like getting a cataract. Taken yeah. out. I mean, what you're talking about, Theo, in this last couple of minutes, is really a, a rarefied realization, and it is disorienting. Yeah. But you know, we have to sort of get big enough for it so that yeah. we can just continue to be a good person. Yeah. And we know how to sit. In and flux. we know how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> we can. We can have the whole world dissolve around us and yeah. know how to sit with it. Well, it takes it's learning. It's um, helpful. Yeah, I, I think of uh, something I mentioned in my book. It's this uh, Jorge Luis Borges, extremely short story. It's about a page long of this um, place where they make a map that uh, has such fine detail that it covers the territory. And uh, so, you know, of course, to lay down a map like that, you've got to you've got to take people out to the place. But somehow you've got to get the people that are making the map onto the map, which you can never really do because the map constantly changes as you're you're dealing with it. And then I start thinking about climate models in relation to this. And climate models have to account not only for um, chaotic atmospheric activity, chaotic oceanic activity, chaotic activity in the growth of vegetation on the planet, um, and the weathering of soil, because soil's releasing greenhouse gases. They have to account for human behavior. So, you know, it gives me this fantasy. What if we were to have you know, the, the ultimate climate model that could account for every, you know, square inch of activity on the planet. And it would have to go into the minds of every single person on the planet. Mm -hmm. And this would be able to be predict, predict the future unto eternity because mm -hmm. it would know exactly what's happening now. But it's absolutely impossible, which just tells you how hard it is to deal with climate models. Yeah. But, but on, on a deeper level, it just, it just, it, it highlights, uh, how shifting to the global level involves forces that are 
so unbelievably chaotic. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not so sure we'll get all the way where we have the machine that does everything. No, I don't expect that. But, you know, I actually do think that, you know, the way out of this climate mess is probably something like controlling the weather. You know, just like we control the weather in, the, in my house right here, right now. That would have been unheard of for most of human history, that we could actually could have climate control. And I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, you're, you're right. It's tremendously complex and chaotic. But this is what we're, you know, getting ever better at. Yeah. And one of the things that I think climate really shows us is that people will tend to keep their world as clean as they can. Mm-hmm. And there's, I think there's some exceptions, but, but for the most part, people will. And so you see that people who are nationalistic, if you think of America in the 70s and 80s, 60s, 70s and 80s, there was a tremendous environmental movement to clean up the air. Remember the Denver brown cloud? Yeah. Remember Lake Erie, the Cuyahoga River catching yeah. fire? I mean, we were a mess back after the, you know, that crazy industrialization after World War II. And we actually, through the EPA and, and so forth, have largely cleaned up a lot of that. There's still yeah. problems, but we've cleaned up a lot of that. Yeah. And so people are capable of cleaning up their own backyard. And we see this happening in China now. The, the Chinese, they don't want their kids walking around with masks. Yeah. You know, they want to clean it up. But it's only when we become world-centric when we realize that the world's my home. Yeah. And this, not many people there. Yeah. You know, I mean, what, what did Don Beck and Ken Wilber estimate? you know, uh, maybe 20% of, even in the developed world, 20, 25% of people are really world-centric. Yeah. And so the solution is, first of all, a little bit of elitism, honestly. I mean, the two cheers for elitism because we actually want the people who are world-centric to be making the rules, yeah. you know, and to be, you know, working this out. And I think there's some of that happening. And yet in democratic societies, you sort of have to bring everybody along. And what is climate, uh, in terms of cl- global climate, is what, 14th, 15th on the, on, <laughs> uh, uh, the issues, yeah. 24th, and you know, <laughs> issues that voters care about in yeah. America? Yeah. I mean, they're not world-centric. They literally can't see it, Theo. Yeah. You know, and so the, 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 the goal is to get, first of all, elitism in the meantime, while everybody's getting to green, yeah. basically. Yeah, there's so much <laughs> in what you were saying. Uh, this thing with geoengineering, yeah, you know that we can control the climate of yeah. the Earth. I like to reframe it and say that this is what the bulk of the environmental movement is trying to do right now through getting a global climate deal. Yeah. We're trying to control the climate of the Earth. We're trying to regulate. Thank you. It's, good yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a much much more complex process of doing it. Um, and usually, when you talk with leading environmentalists about geoengineering schemas they'll raise some some ones that have been taken very seriously that have strange side effects Um, but that doesn't mean we should drop the project it's just there's some ones with very strange side effects like spewing sulfur into the upper atmosphere which is going to um reflect sunlight yeah reflect sunlight and uh but that's going to have its own polluting effects and it's going to go away at some point in time so you're stuck having to do that so it's a very very complex process and 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 there's a danger that we can hook ourselves into commitments that are going to last, you know, centuries, if not millennia into the future that we could we could never maintain. But not all solutions have to be like that. I, I remember reading an article in The Economist uh, um, 
several years ago that I haven't been able to find again. It hasn't come up, but there was um, some kind of rock that was highly prominent in Saudi Arabia that very little, it, it absorbed CO2 and very little of it. Um, you ground it up, it absorbs CO2 and it becomes solid. And it can actually be used as a sort of brick at that point in time. And, mm -hmm. uh, um, so we're, we're going to just- I read that too. Yeah, well, yeah whatever happened to it. literally absorbs CO2. <laughs> yeah, I, I think these things are, uh, you know, even the, 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 the um, uh, progress made on fusion that got some attention. Yeah. Uh, that's huge if that yeah. comes along and probably will at some point. So I, I do think we'll fail forward mm -hmm. uh, and we'll probably screw some things up. Yeah. It's a gnarly, gnarly problem. Yeah. And, so, and, and, and the other thing I wanted to say is that one of the things that Integral can see that green can't, postmodernists post can't, is how postmodernity, a lot of the environmental passion and movement, is actually anti-modernist in general. Mm -hmm. So it's not yeah. just about climate and you know, pollution. It's about ratcheting back materialism and the alienation and some of the, you know, the, the exploitation, uh, the breakup of families, all of the stuff that comes with modernity, the, these downsides of, of modernity. And so we just want to tease that apart yeah. and make sure that we know, you know, all of these, you know, the, these various motivations that are online. The thing with being able to think globally is you've got to be able to think abstractly and not just be able to think abstractly. You have to embrace abstract thinking because you're never going to be able to touch on all parts of the, the globe. You're not going to know them very well. So you've got to do, you've got to, <laughs> I'll offend some of my green allies. Uh, you've got to think arrogantly. You've got to think up a plan that you know is going to be wrong because you can't touch all the pieces of it. And you have to think statistically. Um, my favorite environmentalist is a global thinker that's careful, that's dealing with what I think is the most important issue in the world uh, of world hunger. Um, Lester Brown, and that's where he got his start, and he, and he focused on environmental issues um, with the World Watch Institute. Um, and he's mainstream, solid, well-respected environmentalist, and also seems to have a little more respect amongst the World Bank uh, official hunger crowd, uh, which is where I think he might have gotten his start in the 60s. Uh, you know, what he's doing is he's he's tracking multiple different issues statistically, and you're tracking soil fertility, you're tracking yields um, you, uh, of, of crops, you're, you're tracking acreage that crops are, are placed on. Um, you've got to be tracking um, how much um, cropland is eating into rainforests. Uh, you've got to be tracking how temperatures is affecting uh, the growth of crops. And we know how it will affect it. It's um, as temperatures raise, we're going to get lower yields. And um, then you've got to be asking questions, how can we rebuild soil? But but we know that that mechanized high input commercial agriculture, I'll, I'll say mechanized high input agriculture uh, is more productive than organic agriculture, say, but it destroys the soil. Right. So, so not more productive in the long term. Yeah, it's, it's, this it's, is where that longer term. It's very paradoxical, yeah. but there's no way we could feed the world on organics as we currently use them. Permaculture is a different story, um, but permaculture hasn't spread very fast. And my guess is because it's... Um, there's a very, very careful, qualitative, small-scale mindset that uh, that it inspires. Um, so, you know, environmentalism, for me, which is extremely important um, for the long-term viability of humanity or, or well-being and all other species, um, has to embrace truly global thinking, but it's not what environmentalists tend to think it is. 
um, you lose touch with, you, you cease to, to have a tangible sense of what's out there when you're thinking globally. It can become quite dry. Mm-hmm. Now, integral thinkers will tend to be a little more fluid in their global thinking than, mm-hmm. than careful environmentalists that are, that are calculating you know, long-term survival Mm-hmm. This long-term survivability of humanity. Um, oftentimes, the uh, these environmentalists. I think Paul Ehrlich's another one who's um, uh, after the population bomb in the '60s, um, which was wildly inaccurate in some ways, and in some ways he just nailed what was happening with a slight global cooling trend and a move towards global warming. He saw that from um, a distance that almost everybody missed. These kinds of people that are, that are tracking these numbers really carefully, um, they seem to forget something else about the internal dimension of the human spirit and the capacity for innovation. Yeah, that's right. Part of me wants to take that back immediately upon saying it, because some of these people are really, they see the potential and, and um, uh, they worry more. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, um, you know, I do... I be, I'm certainly accused of this often enough, sort of having sort of a Pollyanna attitude about these things. Uh, But I do have to factor in human creativity. Uh, And and that means that we're going to come up with things that we almost can't imagine now. Who thought of the Internet in 1990? I mean, I I sold my business in 1995. We didn't have email. (laughs) We didn't. We were passing around those, you know, manila envelopes. And everybody, you know, remember that process? So it's just astonishing yeah. what can happen. And that, you know, I, and I don't say that to let people off the hook. And that's always, the, that's always the fear. Because, and this is another thing that I think Integral really helps us with, is this, is this idea that is when we move into second-tier thinking, if you will, the Integral thinking, Integral consciousness, we're no longer as driven by fear. Uh, the earlier stages, yeah. uh, they're, they're called deficiency memes because um, there's always something wrong. Every postmodern, modern, traditional, tribal, everybody thinks we disobeyed God. We've, whatever, we've driven this thing into the ditch and we've done something terrible. And, you know, no, we haven't. We've gone from three-year-olds to six-year-olds to 12-year-olds to 18-year-olds. And in a certain way, it's not pretty. Yeah. But it seems to be part of the process and new things come online that are absolutely unimaginable. A six-year-old can't imagine what an 18-year-old knows. The big paradox here for me is humanity is unbelievably resilient. Human societies are unbelievably resilient. We know how to bring order to our own internal lives when things are shaken up in ways that we could never imagine. I, I think particularly of people who become paraplegic, they tend to go schizophrenic for a few months and within six months, their happiness levels are almost at the level they were uh, prior to their accidents. Yes. And they stay just a little below, um, probably because it's just really difficult. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, collapse does happen. Yeah. Death happens. Yeah. All the time, societies fall apart. Absolutely. The number of failed states is increasing, even as all of these indicators of education, um, education of women, infant mortality, uh, longevity, these are improving everywhere in the world, including failed states. And yet states are falling apart. Yes. And so it's there true. is that potential for collapse. It and that's is. one of the things you see with global consciousness. Maybe the first thing about moving into a global system is you see, oh my God, the world could fall apart. Yeah. Well, you look at, um, we talked about 
Western Europe and Japan being the most most developed consciously yeah. in terms of green and green yeah. plus. Um, that was hard won. Look what they had to go through the first half of the 20th century to get to that. Yeah. Let's hope that everybody who gets to green doesn't have to go through what the leading edge did. Yeah. Because if they did, it's not going to be pretty. Yeah. But I actually don't think that's the case. I think I do think that what happens, I, I think that, you know, especially in earlier stages of development, people really just don't have that. They don't have enough, you know, consciousness to, to sort of extrapolate forward in a way mm -hmm. that we do at higher stages of consciousness. And so, you know, all of these, you know, Rome fell. They all fall. You know, they, they're, yeah. they all meet with disaster, every one of them. Yeah. Uh, but what happens, and we see this in modern and in postmodern organizations, particularly, where there's a creative destruction, there's an intentional destruction. It, and, and I could also say that um, advanced spiritual practitioners are doing the same thing, where you're, you're actually deliberately destruct, destroying uh, your sense of security, your sense of self, your sense of what's going to happen, so that you don't have to be knocked over the head by something. Mm. And you can actually have a conscious process of failing forward that's not devastating. That's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. So when I, when I, I think, hope. When I think about people, institutions, and societies at the leading edge, something different has to take place. You're pushing yourself forward. Yes. When, when I think about... But the, you're not doing it out of fear as much as you're doing it out of now love, creativity, expression. Yeah, I, have, I, I can't not yeah, give this. Yeah. But it's different than when you're at the back of the train. Yeah. And at the back of the train, everything is pulling you forward and the world is impinging upon you. Yes. And, um, and, and there's this strange phenomenon of an undeveloped society now. Uh, it, it's good it actually might get more of the world impinging upon it. Mm -hmm. You're going to have it, it's going to be invaded by NGOs. Yeah. It's going to be, um, international law is going to be vastly more important to it. Chances are it's um, in a drier climate. You just look at, you know, this swath from uh, um, just below the Sahara through India, the Sahara Desert, uh, a lot of the Islamic countries of the Middle East, uh, Pakistan, um, these incredibly dry places that uh, are also very poor places. And um, the international law matters than, than anything else. Sure. And uh, climate change is going to matter more to them in the long run because they're, they're going to be hurt uh, more by um, uh, declining soil fertility and declining fertility of uh, their croplands. Um, it's, it's just incredible. Uh, I, I don't understand. So I don't really understand what the process of development is when you're being impinged upon by so many higher stages of development. Yeah, well, we're looking at it. <laughs> you know, it, it cuts both. Yeah. I mean, cuts both ways. Uh, there's also the solutions that come from. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and also, just you know, even population. Nat people naturally stop having as many kids. Yeah. You know, modern. Postmodern people aren't even reproducing yeah. to replicate the population. We're talking, you know, Scandinavia and Italy and some of these places. Uh, and so th that's these, a lot of these Fingers things Fingers crossed. Naturally. I hope that lasts. Well, it, it's just, yeah. you know, when, when, first of all, your kids live. Yeah. You know, yeah. half of them are going to die. Yeah. That's something yeah. you factor in. And the other is that kids are 
are not economic assets. Yep. They're economic liabilities. Yeah. They're economic assets it, when you're, you know, peasants. It's all true for this stage in history. Yeah, and exactly. Pray, that's why I'm praying. It, yeah. it may, re, remains true yeah. in 100 years. Uh, I think about aid and the failures of aid to actually bring about development. And it's, it's really depressing when you start wading into the material because I'm a big, big believer in it, even with um, seeing a lot of things go disastrously wrong. It's just... It's so cliche, but I'm uh, reminded of the Star Trek's prime directive that you know, you're not supposed to interfere with these societies that you go into. Uh, um, it's almost like uh, Gene Roderick, whoever it was that, that made Star Trek, uh, had studied uh, aid work. and, and um, But it does work at the same time, yeah. and we're learning how to make it work well, better. I was just going to say, we're learning how to we're do learning. it better. We're learning how to do everything. We're just so much more. Look at the, yeah. the Gates Foundation versus you know, just this sending money or sending yeah. crates of stuff that, you know, the corrupt elites would sell and whatever. I mean, it's, we are getting better at that. Yeah, I agree. And that's, that's why, you know, I think an evolutionary view becomes more optimistic because it's, you can see the world is a mess compared to any fantasy of how it should be better. Yeah. But it's also less of a mess than it's ever been in all of human history. It is. I'm sorry. More people have more calories and kilowatts. And, you know, yeah. we still we have the climate thing. That's a gnarly problem that we, yeah. we, we need to be world-centric to deal with. We're getting there. Um, but, you know, there is an updraft By to history By multiple here. indicators of well-being, the world is yes. better off than, yes. than it's ever been. Yeah. Yet the trailing edge is as ugly and brutal as, as it has ever been. I mean, yeah. uh, Syria, yeah. Um, ISIS. Yeah. You know. And I think it's more disoriented. That might that might be the difference. It's it's no longer an, an example of of people from uh, from these very poor places and undeveloped places and oppressive places. They know how the rest of the world looks at them. So I, I had this there was this ongoing joke this uh, summer with uh, my girlfriend and I as we were traveling, and it was. You couldn't compliment a place without people complaining about it. Uh, there was, so even the Danish guy, I was like, "Come on, just <laughs> it's Denmark it. for God's come sake! Come on, it's Denmark. Like, there's nothing wrong here. Right. This is the like, happiest place on earth. <laughs> <laughs> just like accept the compliment. Like, I like your country. Um, but then, you know, I met three women who uh, who either had been brought up in or lived in or spent significant time in, and, and some of this was on Facebook too, um, from Saudi Arabia. And two of them that had spent the most time there said, it's really not that bad. It's actually really nice in Saudi Arabia. And it was like the one place where you had a group that was supposed to be in the worst condition. It was just right. like... It's, and Saudi Arabian women, no less. We know exactly how you think of us. And, you know, we have... And it was actually interesting. Their answer is fascinating. Yeah. Their answer, and their answer was, um, "We have our own domain. We've got all these nonprofits. We completely control the households. We com we control things like women in the in the West couldn't even begin to yes. control." Uh, no, it's so um, true. It's, <laughs> it's so interesting. And women are stronger here because yeah. of it. And so they 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 had a pretty good answer to it all. But but my point is, they see how the world is is looking at them. That's a very strange thing to be in a society that's falling apart 
and to know how much better it can be to know that everybody looks upon you as sort of falling apart and often misunderstands you because we don't tend to know a lot about these places, which is, which is really sad. I mean, all the gifts that they have to give tend to get looked over because people like me are doing disaster journalism. Actually, I I tend to emphasize other um, better cultural. Thank you. I think you do. And, and, you know, if I may say, I think, what you're doing is the solution to this problem. The, the human beings misunderstand each other is not news. Yeah. I mean, or and you know, and oppress each other through misunderstanding and misinterpretations and all that stuff. But that we're actually doing what you're doing, which is this, uh, you know, again, the integral journalism. That even yeah. what you're talking about with Facebook, talking to these women from Saudi Arabia, yeah. talking about it. I mean, this is what else is there to do? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I wish we could make it faster and easier, but. This is how we're doing it. The most exciting thing for me about moving into this globalization of mind, which I'm not necessarily taking as a stage of development, but really is, it it engages so many parts of ourselves. Uh, Mentally, we're pushing ourselves to the utmost limit, thinking about these issues. We're, We're going to feel overwhelmed, so it's an emotional process of dealing with what we're coming up against. And, and, and I say overwhelmed, there's overwhelmed with information, but there's also overwhelmed with fears about things that can break down that we never imagined could break down. We're overwhelmed by responsibilities for, you know, it's a funny thing that we can actually feel responsible for species that haven't even yet been discovered. Like we're now ethically committed to species that haven't yes. been discovered. Yes. What a bizarre thing. All beings known and unknown. Yeah. Pushing ourselves <laughs> to feel empathy for people who we're never going to see, we're going to know them as statistics, uh, even if we study quite a bit, even if we spend all of our time studying, we're going to mostly know these people in certain societies as statistics and we have to care for them and feel empathy for them. And we're going to get it so wrong. And so somehow we have to learn how to, to grapple with having gotten it wrong. And, and then there's the actually crossing the barriers into connectivity with people on the other side of the world. <laughs> I've got to say, I love the YouTube videos of interspecies love. Me too. <laughs> They're beautiful and extraordinary. They are indeed. They're a historical leap that's just unbelievable. Yes. <laughs> I know the dog and the cat kissing and snuggling and the bird the and lion the lion and the lamb. The lion and the fucking lamb, for God's sake. So, you know, it's, it's an incredibly exciting process and it opens up new worlds for us doesn't it i mean even just to pause for a moment the the seeing that that does sort of loosen something up in our psyche yeah when we see the dog and cat and rat all like (laughs) snuggling i don't know it's 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 almost like seeing the earth from the moon yeah yeah seeing the earth from the moon the dog the cat the rat the united nations sitting there making decisions together and they're absolutely messy unworked uh, process, but yes. it's yes. a start. Yes. Well, as we say, evolution is beautiful, but it sure as hell ain't pretty. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Theo Haresh, absolutely for this has been fun. talking with us this afternoon. It's been a great talk. I love your work. Uh, I'm really looking forward to getting your book. It is again called Convergence: The Globalization of Mind. So thanks thank you so again. much. This has been a blast.